Well, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. While you're finding that, I want to talk to you about the topic of spiritual alertness. Spiritual alertness is a key and important part of the Christian life. In Acts 20, 31, Paul exhorts the elders of the church at Ephesus to be alert because spiritual wolves were coming among them, spiritual alertness as church leaders. In Romans 12, verse 3, all Christians are called to not think of themselves more highly than they ought, but to think with sober judgment. This is spiritual alertness about your own pride. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.18 that we're to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, that we're to be alert in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5.6, in response to the knowledge that the world is growing more and more evil, Paul tells us, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Peter warns that Christians ought to be alert because of the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which could be at any time. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, set your hope fully on looking toward the coming of Christ. And in the context of 1 Peter, that means you're being obedient because Christ could return at any moment. It's the same reason that he says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And here's the big one. Peter reminds us that we do have a spiritual enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And of course, Paul again tells us in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, as opposed to acting like spiritual children. And then he says, be strong. There's so many admonitions to the believer to be alert, sober-minded, watchful. And if spiritual alertness is the goal, and that's the standard for the believer in Christ, we could identify the nemesis of the Christian, the enemy of the Christian, the worst thing we could walk into, the opposite of spiritual alertness, and that is spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy is an attitude that says, I don't really need to stay close and bound to the truth of the Word of God. I can do it on my own. Spiritual apathy says, I don't really need to be a man or woman of prayer. God will take care of me anyway. Spiritual apathy says, I don't really need to take super seriously the the admonitions and commands of Scripture and apply them to my life. I can mess with sin. I can let it fester. I'm not really worried about it that much. The consequences won't be that bad. And we roll the dice with apathy. Spiritual apathy is an attitude that says, I don't really need to be a vital member of the local church. I can just float. Spiritual apathy at times includes an attitude that blames others for your problems and sees yourself as a victim instead of looking in the mirror and analyzing your own sin. Spiritual apathy is an attitude that never really looks deeply at your own sin patterns to humbly know and be highly aware of your own weaknesses and your own sin tendencies. 
All of this is spiritual disaster. It's falling asleep at the wheel going 80 miles an hour and you wake up just before tragedy. And one area in which spiritual apathy shows up is in marriage. Even in marriages between two believers who love Christ. And so we will most definitely define marital apathy as spiritual apathy. Because marriage is part of your spiritual walk with Christ. The two are inseparable. What does spiritual apathy in marriage look like? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a disconnect between your walk with Christ and your marriage. There's a disconnect between your walk with Christ and your marriage. That my walk with Christ happens when I read the Bible, when I pray, and when I go to church. But my marriage is something separate. It's, it's totally different. Spiritual apathy in a marriage includes a lack of taking seriously the scriptural admonitions of marriage. At what point will a husband say, I'm going to really take seriously husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. At what point will a wife say, I'm really going to take seriously wives to respect your husband, submit to them. I'm going to, I'm going to do this like I mean it. A husband who has just quit trying to love his wife as Christ loves the church and instead just endures her, that's spiritual apathy. A wife who stopped trying a long time ago to respect her husband and now just treats him like one of the children. Spiritual apathy. Forgetting that marriage is called in 1 Peter 3 the grace of life and instead settling into a routine of unspoken resentments, unresolved conflicts, sin pattern that you've just decided is easier to live with than to actually deal with and confront. And so spiritual apathy in marriage includes a disconnect between your walk with Christ and your marriage, a lack of taking seriously the scriptural admonitions of marriage. It also includes a loss of the passionate love with which you started. A loss of the passionate love with which you started, that it's been years since you daydreamed about spending time with your spouse. That compliments are now few and far between. That cut downs and jokes about enduring your marriage are now par for the course. That you can't remember the last time you made a conscious choice to think positive and thankful and delightful thoughts toward your spouse as commanded by Scripture. To be honest with you, in some ways, apathy in marriage is worse than passionate disagreement. Because at least in passionate disagreement, you're trying, albeit sinfully, to reach a place of harmony. Apathy hurts more than anger. It hurts more than overt sins against one another because apathy says, I just don't really care anymore. And that's a step beyond just anger or passion. Apathy says, you aren't that special to me anymore. Sure, I'll be faithful and I'll put on the show of a decent marriage. But the truth is that you aren't that important to me. Not like it used to be. Where does spiritual apathy start? I think it's safe to say that apathy starts with little gestures. Small times of just trying not quite as hard as you used to. Of not pursuing love quite like you used to. And I guarantee you that for every young couple that says, well, that will never happen to me. There's an older couple that says, yeah, we said that too. And in fact, apathy is dangerous. Because if you even give the impression of apathy, this can hurt the other so deeply that then the 
an actual distance. And at that point, at times, that distance can fester and it's actually easier to just leave the distance there than that feeling of constant rejection from the one that you love more than anyone. And, and at that point, of course, this distance creates a slippery slope of many other sins that can creep in. These sins can be as small as slight irritability. It can go higher to nagging. It can go to pornography. It can go to full-on adultery. All beginning with apathy. I have unfortunately had the opportunity to speak to many who have violated the sanctity of their marriage. Many who have been unfaithful. And almost never ever is that violation, is that adultery about sexual pleasure. It's almost always about intimacy. Emotional intimacy. About being caught in Satan's trap of suddenly being around someone who seems to actually like you. And it seems that she likes you a lot more than your own spouse does. And it causes a a thrilling and an exhilarating feeling of being esteemed and not berated, not mistreated. And it's something, wow, I forgot what that feels like. And the weakened spouse succumbs to the most horrible betrayal of marital vows at all. Of all, this is like the, the seed of the gospel which Jesus described in the parable of the sower. The opposite of that, the seed of apathy can start small and it can grow literally into a marriage killer. Oh, the marriage will last on paper for a lifetime. And, and maybe at one of their funerals, there will even be some speeches about how, how mom was so loyal to dad all through the years. And the kids will never know that that fire went out decades ago. No one starts their marriage with spiritual apathy. When I have the privilege of saying, I now pronounce you husband and wife, no couple goes down the the aisle and then goes opposite directions at the end. They think they're going to be the first ones to never struggle with this. But that is the course that Satan wants every marriage to go down because it's a slippery slope toward dousing the flame of love completely. Well, right now, In Song of Solomon, we come to the text that time-wise is right after the honeymoon. And after our thoughts on apathy, you might be saying, wow, that didn't last long. Well, we don't know how long the honeymoon lasted, so to speak. There isn't a solid way to tell just how long after the honeymoon that chapter 5 takes place. What really serves as a good warning to us to not make assumptions But the clear theme beginning in chapter 5 is the honeymoon is most definitely over. I didn't tell you that's what we were preaching on this morning because you wouldn't have come tonight. So we're going to work our way through chapter 5 verses 2 through 8 or so. We may mention verse 9 if we have time. And discover what we'll call the anatomy of apathy. What is the progression? What does it look like? And and I I would urge us all to let this serve as a warning. The anatomy of apathy, and this will be in about four parts here. Here's the first part of the anatomy of apathy. We'll call it a poor response. A poor response. I'd like to just walk through this as the the drama unfolds. Let's set the scene. Solomon and Shulamith have been married for some time now. And again, we don't know how much time has elapsed since the wedding. But in chapter 6, verse 8, we see that by that point in their marriage, Solomon has 60 queens and 80 concubines. And we dealt with that problem in the introductory messages. I'm not going to go back to that. 
But we've also seen earlier in Song of Solomon that Solomon pledged his love to Shulamith despite the, the wrong-headed pathway of these continued political marriages. And so we can safely assume that at least several years have passed by this point. That's the time. What about the place? Shulamith is in her bedroom, or more likely a large suite, almost certainly in the king's palace. That's the most likely location. And she's asleep. And similar to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, she begins having a dream. And in her dream, Solomon has come to her door, and he's eager for her. This sounds very romantic so far. Chapter 5, verse 2, read along with me. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. She's dreaming of this romantic encounter in which Solomon is outside her door. And she says to herself, a sound, my beloved is knocking. Now, what is the sound? The the sound is either the knocking, but much more likely, as we'll see in a moment, the sound is initially uh, Solomon trying to move the, the latch or the bolt on the door to open it, but it's locked. Now, some scholars even explain that it may be a large keyhole, not the kind we would think of, a a hole large enough to get your whole hand through to open the bolt. Uh, The bolt wasn't so much for security, it was just to keep the door closed. And so in all likelihood, he could have gotten in if he wanted to, but the door is bolted, and rather than forcing his way in, he knocks. And then he speaks through the door. So first the latch or the, or the bolt rattling around, then the knocking on the door, and then his voice. In Hebrew, it's a command. Open to me. With the obvious meaning that he's not just speaking of the door, but herself. He wants her to open to him. And, and lest we think he's not being gentlemanly by making this demand, we see his heart and we see his clear desire. Any woman on planet earth knows what he's asking for. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He's being so complimentary. Now, several theories have been suggested for why he tells her that his hair is wet. Why would he do this? Some say he was sweating from having crossed the palace courtyard. That seems unlikely. Open to me. By the way, I'm really sweaty. That that wouldn't make any sense. Others say that he's been outside and the humidity of the air is what he's talking about. I don't think he's giving a weather report. The most obvious answer is his eagerness. It's late at night. He cannot sleep. And he's just expressed his desire for her. And and he says that he has so much desire that he's broken into a sweat. In other words, he can't sleep because of his desire. So he's letting her know that. And, And by the way, we should note here that this isn't just physical lust. This is not just physical desire. He has 60 queens. He has 80 concubines by this time. And yet he suffers in the night because his desire is only for her. She is his heart. She is his love. What a romantic scene. I I like to picture what kind of music would go along with things. Uh, Once upon a time, I thought I wanted to write music for film and TV and I thought that would be fun. And so I picture what kind of music, and so I I thought about this. What kind of music would we put in here? Should we picture maybe a a classical string quartet to picture the beauty of this moment? Or maybe we should picture a, a classic rock power ballad from the 80s taking them away to marital bliss. How about a, a modern hip-hop hit that mirrors the passion of their love? 
Or maybe we should picture a swooning, crooning big band from the 50s. Maybe we should picture a recent hit, cozy country love song that speaks of the tenderness of their affection. Given the context, what you should picture is an out-of-tune banjo accompanied by a kazoo trying to play the Righteous Brothers song, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Because Solomon has spoken through the door, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. And she says in verse 3, I put off my garment. How can I put it on? I bathed my feet. How can I soil them? This is best understood in the present tense. I'm undressed. Go away. I've washed my feet. I'm all ready for bed. In other words, she's not in a romantic mood. And we can imagine any sort of picture we can relate to and probably not be far off that maybe she's in bed with a bag of chips reading a good book. She's tired after a long day and she's really looking forward to crawling under the covers and she's just reached for them and knock, knock, knock and she's, oh, really? Or maybe she's done her nighttime routine and she's got the mud and goo all over her face and whatever it takes, she's all clean and she doesn't want to get all filthy and Solomon just said, hey, I'm really sweaty and boy, that sounds great, Solomon. This is a far cry from her pre-marriage desires. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, she says, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I'm sick with love. In chapter 2, verse 17, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. This is when she tells them to run away before they sin sexually, before their marriage. Chapter 3, verse 1, her first dream, On my bed by, by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. But now her response is poor. She wasn't ready. She wasn't prepared. And her sin nature kicks in first. And her responses send a message of apathy or maybe to put it in a word that's very deeply offensive to most of us, whatever. She didn't plan ahead what her righteous response ought to be. And since they've been married for some years now, a history of hurt And seeing his sin for what it really is has likely entered into the equation as well. That she simply at this moment at least did not see him in the loving light that she once did. And I would say this is the battle that we all fight. That we desire to plan our responses in advance. But it doesn't always work out that way. And this isn't just in the area of marriage. This is in every area in which we need to respond well. Planning our responses takes persistence. It takes battling your own sin nature. It takes planning. It takes prayer. This is an example. Proverbs helps us plan responses. We could could derive some planned responses just from Proverbs 15 alone. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. What's the planning? I plan to have a gentle tongue and not to be perverse with my tongue. Verse 18 of Proverbs 15, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention that the plan is that when I feel my blood boiling, I'm going to calm it down. Chapter 15, verse 23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is. What is that saying? I need to plan to make the length from my brain to my mouth a little bit longer. One of the best ways in the marriage to 
have better responses to one another is to help each other. Not in a cutting way, not in a nagging way, but to be okay with being instructed by and corrected by the other as a brother and sister in Christ. What a wonderful opportunity. You are living with a sanctification mirror all the time. And if you'd be okay with looking in the mirror, then that's so helpful. We've referred occasionally to the marriage wisdom of Puritan pastor Richard Baxter and Listen to his words about receiving correction from each other for both of you, not, not just one of you. He says, quote, Keep up your love to one another. Do not grow distant. For if you do, you will despise each other's counsels and reproofs. In other words, being emotionally bonded and close is the time where you can gently help one another and reprove each other. He says, quote, Do not discourage your spouse from instructing you by refusing to receive and learn from their corrections. Why do spouses generally stop helping each other? Because the payback and the retribution and the price is too big to pay. I've lost track of the number of couples where I hear them use the phrase, No, he's going to make me pay if I say anything to him. Baxter says this, Do not either blindly indulge each other's faults. In other words, don't not correct anything, if I can use a double negative. Quote, nor be too critical of each other's state. In other words, don't correct everything. And he says this allows Satan to alienate your affections from one another. Now, I mentioned this in the previous message, but how about this? He recommends receiving reproof from others and doing so together. This is a great way to be corrected because it's not not direct. He says this, quote, Help each other by reading together the most convicting, cutting, life-giving books, the ones most spiritual. In other words, isn't it great when someone else says the words that you wish you could say? So we see here Shulamith starts off this cycle of apathy. The first part of the anatomy of apathy is a poor response. The second part of the anatomy of apathy we'll call too little, too late. Too little, too late. Verse 4. My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. She says, my heart was thrilled within me. The use of the translation thrilled in the English Standard Version is fairly interpretive, actually. It's a Hebrew word that means to groan or to be agitated. It can be positive. But the context here tells us that she is potentially much more likely irritated. Now, it can be construed that her feelings are turning toward him, that there is a turning happening. But in any case, we'll see that her first response is really what counted in Solomon's mind. And her lack of immediate responsiveness is now going to have consequences. Remember her first response. Verse 3, I had put off my garment. Better in, in present tense. I have put off my garment. How can I put it on? I've bathed my feet. How can I soil them? This is what she's saying back to Solomon through the door. That was her first response. That was a response of irritation. That was a response of apathy. Of the fact that I've bathed and gotten undressed already is more important than my husband. And he will read that as apathy toward him. The most hurtful thing one spouse can really express toward the other. But to her credit, she does try to fix the situation. So she goes to the door to open it. And the oddest thing happens. Verse 5, I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. 
So as she starts opening the door, her hands are dripping with liquid myrrh. This is the spice that's mentioned so often already in Song of Solomon in connection to her body, in connection to their intimacy together. So what is it that's happened here? Well, there's two possible scenarios. The first possibility is that Shulamith has has given in. She's gotten up and she's covered her hands in myrrh in preparation for intimacy and perhaps to use with both of them. But there would be a bolt to open first and slathering your hand with liquid myrrh would make that really difficult. And her emotion of verse 4 is not one of eagerness, but of some sort of hurt or irritation or negativity. It's not the emotion equated with suddenly getting ready for love. The other possible scenario, the one that makes much more sense, is that Solomon himself has brought liquid myrrh with him for his anticipated time with her. But when she wouldn't open to him, and when she called to him through the door, instead of opening to him, he dribbled the liquid myrrh all over the door handle, and it would have gone through the keyhole and down onto the inside. And this is a significant amount. This is something in a big container he would have just dumped in there. And so with liquid myrrh dripping off her hand, she opens the door to him. All will be well, right? Nope, it was too little, too late. Verse 6. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. Now, Song of Solomon doesn't comment on whether Solomon's actions here are right or wrong, just that this is what happened. I do know this, though, that no spouse wants to beg and plead for the other to be loving, to give themselves to the other. And so he gives her what she initially asked for. What did she say initially? She said, go away. And so he does. He goes away. This is the one who on their honeymoon said in chapter 4, verse 16, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now, she says, the door is locked. And she finds that he hasn't stayed around. He's gone. And by the time she opens the door, he's not just walking away. He's gone. He didn't wait around. He's nowhere to be seen and and dripping on her hands. He's left her a reminder of what could have been. It's not harsh. It's not cruel. It's not angry. He just dribbles the myrrh all over the door to let her know what he had been offering. The first part of the anatomy of apathy, a poor response. The second part, too little, too late. The third part, the pain of regaining closeness. The pain of regaining closeness. Now she has a change of heart. She misses him now that she doesn't have him. Verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Her soul failed her. This is, this is a very strong statement. It means literally something in her died. The pain of her heart that her careless words of apathy have now resulted in his absence. And we cannot underestimate how strong her grief is, how strong this, this statement is here. It's exactly the same wording used in Genesis thirty-five eighteen when Jacob's beloved wife Rachel was dying. And as a result of giving birth to, to Benjamin, she's dying. And she says, uh, the text says, as her soul was departing for she was dying. Same phrase. My soul failed me. My soul was dying in me. In other words, it just hit Shulamith what life would be like without Solomon and her own soul dies within her. 
We have the picture in this verse of her looking outside, likely into an outdoor courtyard, looking for him, calling out to him, Solomon, Solomon. But he's gone. Now remember, she's still dreaming, so we don't have a low view of Shulamith. It's just her dreams. I've actually been asked a lot, do I have to confess sins that happen in my dreams? I, I don't know. I would just play it safe and go ahead and confess them. But in her dream, she likely throws on some night clothes and she goes running out into the city to look for Solomon. Now this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Remember the dream they had, she had before they were married? Chapter 3. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In her previous dream here in chapter 3, the watchmen represent the cold and the cruel, inhospitable nature of the city. Now, though, they become the instruments of pain to her, the results of her careless words. Verse 7 The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil. Those watchmen of the walls. She receives a terrible beating at the hands of these watchmen. The text doesn't tell us why. And the text certainly doesn't condone what the imaginary watchmen did. They even take away her veil. This is an act of extreme violence. Apparently taking away some of the night clothes that she had on. But the point is, is that what she is expressing, the truth that we have here is that bad things happen when apathy is acted upon. If she had merely opened the door when he expressed his love for her, none of this would be happening. There is pain in regaining closeness and generally it takes a lot longer than the hurt did, doesn't it? Proverbs 18.19 reminds us that a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. In other words, the hurt of this offense of her treating Solomon with apathy will take some effort and it will take some pain to heal. In fact, the whole section, beginning really in verse 5, all the way to chapter 6, verse 3, is the journey back from this pain that she's caused. So put it this way, one verse to cause the pain, 15 to get back to where you were. All of us have had this experience. We said something to your spouse, took 1.3 seconds to say it and took all day to rectify that situation. But also, if we look ahead, positively, we see that there will be restoration. There will be forgiveness. We'll see that the Solomon does forgive her. They are reunited in love. And again, while the text makes no comment on the rightness or the wrongness of of Solomon going away, she said, go away, and he did. This is called natural consequences. Sin has consequences to it. And again, looking ahead, we see that Solomon will make the right decision to forgive her, to be restored to her. And in fact, as we get further on into the book what we're going to see is he reverts back to his descriptions of her like they're on their honeymoon again 
And the descriptions now are much more intense. They're more personal in these coming chapters. And it doesn't tell us why, but we could speculate that now they have history. Now they've been through things together. Now their love potentially can be even more intense because they've, they've been through the difficulties and they've seen what apathy can do and they have a, a determination not to let that happen anymore. But there is pain in regaining closeness. The first part of the anatomy of apathy, a poor response. Second, too little, too late. Third, the pain of regaining closeness. And the final part of the anatomy of apathy we'll call regret and appreciation. Regret and appreciation. Now, like her other dream, Shulamith comes once again to the daughters of Jerusalem. And she says in verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. Now, this is a little different than her previous dream before they were married. In her premarital dream in chapter 3, verse 5, she tells the daughters of Jerusalem not to awaken love. And she's struggling with it herself. But now, ironically, when love is awakened, when she's married and she's rejected her husband, she's desperate to get the message to him. I'm sick with love. He needs to know this. He needs to know that I'm sorry. I love you. I need you. Come back to me. This is true love mixed with the horrible ingredient of regret. The implication here is that she knows the level of hurt that she's caused with her apathy, which again in many ways is much worse than simply anger or irritation. An angry word can perhaps be overlooked, can it? Because you can attribute this maybe to an unguarded sinful moment. Perhaps you can utilize Proverbs 15.1 that a soft answer turns away wrath. An angry episode is perhaps followed up with, I didn't mean it. That's not an excuse for the sin, but to say that's not what is really in my heart. I acted sinfully when I didn't want to. But apathy is so incredibly damaging because it feels like the true heart of the spouse. That it is his or her actual settled disappointment in you. Apathy goes far beyond just a spontaneous offense, which is quickly forgiven. Apathy says, I'm tired of you. You're worthless to me. That's my new normal. This is a horrible, terrible message to send to your spouse. And this is the the slippery slope that sometimes begins with little, tiny actions. And now we go toward the marriage that has just settled for survival or to be a semblance of what it used to be. I'd like to walk through a few lessons. There are some very sober and key lessons for us to learn. If you're discussing these messages with your spouse, consider this your assignment. I'd like to walk through three lessons. The first lesson, it's much more difficult to get a second chance to respond than to make the decision to do it right the first time. It's a lot more difficult to get a second chance. That's just human nature because you've caused a rift. You've caused hurt. You've caused emotional damage. You've caused a a withdrawing. And particularly if it's a pattern that happens over and over and over again, it becomes more and more difficult. It's more difficult to get a second chance to respond romantically in particular. That is a a great tender area. You're, You're making yourself vulnerable. But this principle certainly goes for every other realm of marriage as well, every type of interaction. The basic principle here is that training yourself to default 
more often than not to a godly response is what has to happen. You know yourself. You know who you are. You know your tendencies. And so that has to be what you watch out for. That's what you're alert to. That's your spiritual alertness. I have to be able to come up to any of you and say, what are the top two sins that you know you are most likely to commit in your marriage? You ought to rattle those off. What are the five things you're doing to try to avoid those two? You ought to rattle those off. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. That's spiritual alertness. Now, we'll admit this. Uh, Solomon banging on the door late at night maybe wasn't the most romantic approach, particularly yelling through the door, I'm really sweaty for you. That's not that romantic. Meshulamith could have responded anyway. She could have chosen not to get irritated or impatient and in a later moment could have said, you know what really would get me going? If you said, I'm not sweaty for you, I've showered first. It's the second sobering lesson for us. If you get nothing else tonight, I hope that you get this. What one spouse considers a small, inconsequential offense can create a major distance because of the message of apathy. You might say, what's the big deal? I think it would be reasonable to believe the best about Shulamith. She wasn't trying to be wicked. She wasn't trying to be evil. She, she was just put out that she was all ready for bed when tall, dark, and sweaty shows up. It comes panting at the door. And so assuming the best about her, in her mind, she was not doing something that was that big of a deal. After all, tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow's a new possibility. And who knows, maybe she was, was planning in her mind, I'll go after him tomorrow. But to Solomon, to a husband who couldn't sleep because of his desire for her, this was a message of, I don't care about you. I don't care about our love. I care more for my own convenience. And for him, this was clearly a crushing message because he didn't stay around to hear one more word. He didn't stay there. If what you think is not a big deal is identified by your spouse as a big deal, it's a big deal. And you treat it as such. There's a third lesson for us. We ought to consider the example of Solomon. Again, the text doesn't comment on the rightness or wrongness of his response. But the question I have is, why did he leave the myrrh? That's such an odd response. Why is there this dripping myrrh, this dripping oil all over the handle? Well, there's nothing wicked about this. There's nothing vengeful about it. There's nothing angry about it that could be construed by by leaving the myrrh. And what's the worst she can say? How dare you get my hands greasy? There's nothing she can say. It was a message that he had desire for her and, and certainly of what could have been, but there's nothing harsh, nothing demeaning, nothing demanding, nothing abusive, nothing over overpowering about this message, nothing threatening. What it tells us is that Solomon was going to forgive because while it carried the message of what could have been, I think it very likely also carried the message of what will be again. That this is a down payment of another time. A message of hope even in the midst of his hurt. He was offended and hurt. And this is a hard lesson for us guys. He was offended and he was hurt, but he was gracious and he was self-controlled. I've heard this question a number of times, so I think it's appropriate now to address this. Someone might ask, what if I'm in the midst of a relationship 
where I sense it or it's just outright said that there is apathy toward me. That the love has gone. That the love from my other is not there anymore. Well, the short answer is that doesn't mean your love has to go. That doesn't mean you have to stop. Your response is not dependent on the other. It's not at all. Richard Baxter, again, going back to the Puritan pastor, he he wrote that even if you're married to one that he calls, quote, an ungodly person, unquote, meaning an unbeliever, that you honor the marriage lovingly. He wrote this, if you are married to one that is an ungodly person, yet keep up all the love which is due for the relation's sake. You can love the other as an act of worship toward God despite whatever venom or apathy or indifference or harshness is coming your way. And I understand that there are exceptions to this, that sometimes the venom is so difficult that the other has, has made the clear message, you, you are the worst thing on planet Earth, I don't ever want to see you again. There's nothing you can do about that either. But in an attitude or in an atmosphere of indifference, an atmosphere of apathy, you can still be loving. You can still do that as an act of worship. Ultimately, you can't control what your spouse does or doesn't do, and we're not called to do so. Uh, For husbands, there's no place in Scripture that says, husbands, make your wives submit. That's not our job. That's not our role. You can only control what you do. And that's where the real peace is. That's where the real contentment is. That you, if you spend your marriage trying to make lists of what you want your spouse to do differently, how about make a list of what you will do differently? Because you can control that. You can absolutely control it. And sometimes you might be surprised that your obedience helps create a pleasant response in the other. On that exact topic, Richard Baxter wrote, quote, Overcome them with love. Then they will be loving to you. And consequently, lovely. Love will cause love as fire kindleth fire. A good husband is the best means to making a good and loving wife. And this, of course, goes both ways. I've seen marriages where this takes a period of years. Where one spouse determines, I'm going to completely change my ways. I'm going to be Christ-like. I'm going to love and just have zero expectations of anything coming back to me. And it takes a few years for there to be a thaw and a warming. But the patience finally won her or won him over. And so, of course, we're reminded of that precious command in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Baxter reminds us all of this very truth when he writes, quote, decide to be patient with one another. Listen carefully. Remembering that you took one another as sinful, frail, imperfect persons and not as angels or as blameless and perfect. He goes on to say, don't be surprised when they sin as badly as you do. I have a theory. I can't prove it. And so you can take this with as big a grain of salt as you want. But I can't help but notice that in this poem written by Solomon about the real-life love story between him and Shulamith, that any time when Shulamith is in the wrong in some way, he writes it as a dream. That perhaps even in the writing of this poem, he would never paint a truly negative picture of her. Well, that's just a dream she had. I don't know about you, but this sounds like a pretty real-life scenario to me. 
And yet he honors her in this poem that in the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is not going to forever immortalize her as the one who is truly apathetic. He'll immortalize her as the one who had a dream about being apathetic. Well, next week, we're still in this story of Solomon's absence due to Shulamith's rejection. But as that begins to resolve itself, what we're going to see as this book uh, rises before us, the rest of the book, we're going to see not only the rekindling of their love, we're going to see this growing strength of their love until the poem ends on this high note of loving tenderness and ecstasy together. In the very last verse of the poem, Shulamith's attitude now is anything but apathetic. Make haste, my beloved. And be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Could I say this? I believe with all of my heart the Song of Solomon is the chronological story of a marriage from courting, courtship to engagement to wedding to the apathy afterwards to developing over the years what their relationship is. And Song of Solomon just crescendos. I don't care if you've been married 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or 50 years. If you know in your heart, uh, yeah, some of that apathy has set in, don't believe it. Don't let it be that way. Let your marriage continue to grow and and to develop. Get out of that attitude, and you can do it. I want to quote one more time what Baxter says about this very topic. Overcome them with love and then they will be loving to you and consequently lovely. Love will cause love as fire kindleth fire. Isn't that good advice? That is good advice. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray once again for every marriage represented here. We pray once again for every future marriage represented here. Oh God, that the the words of truth that we've spoken tonight, Lord, would penetrate our hearts such that We are not spiritually apathetic, but we are spiritually alert. Alert to our own sin. Alert to our spouse's weaknesses and and to be careful not to exploit them. To be careful not to exacerbate them, but to be tender with them. To be quick to forgive. To be slow to anger. To be tender-hearted. To be kind. To be selfless. To be patient. Lord, I pray that no matter the state of any marriage represented in this church, Lord, my prayer is that every one of us would make extra efforts in these coming days to be all the more tender, to be the one that causes the fire of love to be rekindled, to give that extra word of kindness, that extra good response, to plan our righteous responses to one another. And I pray that in the testimonies of heaven someday the testimonies of the marriages represented here would be that when the knock on the door came the door opened and that love was always tender and that the marriage was prioritized and that as each marriage reaches the end of its course in this life there can be a sense of satisfaction that they loved one another to the end no apathy just growing love because this is honoring to christ it is an accurate representation of the gospel that you as our god have never been and will never be apathetic toward us your love burns brightly and will never stop and may we 
Reflect that accurately in our homes. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.